Welcome to Health Tech Talks. I'm Laura Gomez, a senior venture capital analyst at HealthWorks. And I'm Wynn Dobbs, a medical student of the George Washington University. Each episode, we bring you the latest innovations at the intersection between healthcare, business, technology, and the people behind them. Bayesian Health offers an adaptive AI ML platform that forecasts declining trajectories within a hospital's patient population. Their research-backed platform is designed to empower providers with the ability to identify and intervene with next best actions in a timely way. This is accomplished by sending accurate and actionable clinical signals for a wide range of critical condition areas within the EMR and existing workflows. As a result, physicians and care teams are able to catch life-threatening complications much earlier, leading to improved patient outcomes, expanded provider capacity, and reductions in costs. Dr. Suchi Sarya, today's guest, is the founder and CEO of Bayesian Health. She is also the John C. Malone Endowed Chair and the Director of the Machine Learning, AI, and Healthcare Lab at Johns Hopkins University. Her research has pioneered the development of next-generation diagnostic and treatment planning tools that use statistical machine learning methods to individualize care. She has written several of the seminal papers in the field of machine learning, as well as its use for improving patient care and has given over 250 invited keynotes and talks to organizations including the National Academy of Medicine, National Academy of Sciences, and the National Institutes of Health. Dr. Saria has served as an advisor to several Fortune 500 companies, and her work has been funded by leading organizations including the NIH, FDA, NSF, DARPA, and CDC. Throughout her career, she has won several awards for excellence in artificial intelligence and care delivery. Welcome to our podcast, Dr. Saria. It's an honor to have you on today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Before we dive in, uh, I want to start the pod off on a positive note. What is a high note that you've had in the last month, uh, business or non-business related, that you would like to share? So the the coolest high note I've had is that my dad visited me uh, here in the U.S. after almost 12 years. He's a bit of a workaholic and he doesn't love leaving his work. So Mm -hmm. uh, getting him to travel from India to here was quite the feat. And it was an absolute joy spending time with him. Of course, there are other very big high notes, which is, you know, I've been working um, in machine learning and AI for almost 20 years, last 12, and very focused on bringing value with these techniques in healthcare. And a few weeks ago, three weeks ago now, we released three manuscripts that almost felt like a lifetime's worth of work, almost eight years of work by brilliant team, both at Bayesian and Hopkins. where we were able to show some really exciting data on how AI implemented at the bedside. Uh, In this case, it was Bayesian's platform applied to sepsis, and we were able to show very significant uh, reductions in mortality, morbidity, uh, length of stay, and also very high provider adoption or physician adoption, something that Mm -hmm. people have hypothesized with digital health and specifically with uh, anything related to predictive tooling and AI, like providers won't adopt it, will they adopt it? And so these studies are really sort of, uh, you know, grow ground in a number of new ways and are showing uh, results that uh, both Bayesian's building on, but I think is like very exciting for the field of machine learning AI applied to healthcare as a whole. 
That's amazing. Congratulations. And I'm also glad to hear you, your, your father visited my, my family's from Colombia. So it's always great to have family over. Thank you for sharing those two wonderful news of this month. The next question that we wanted to ask you is, in the broadest terms, what is Bayesian health and what problem do you intend to solve? Yeah, absolutely. You know, in healthcare, we now, the last 10 years, what's been incredible is the fact that we now have, you know, 95 to 99% of health systems have adopted some form of electronic health record infrastructure. Yes. And mm -hmm. with new policies, we now have interoperability or governance that ensures that data is going to be exchanged between entities around patients. And so what that makes possible is a way to get a longitudinal view over time of patients, you know, how they're doing, how they're evolving, how they're progressing, how they're, whether certain medications are working or not, which means it's a whole new opportunity. It's like when we didn't have internet and we got internet, it's the same exact thing here, which is mm -hmm. now suddenly medicine has this new infrastructure with this very granular data and the ability to use this data at the point of care to impact decisions around clinical care is just phenomenal. All the way from eliminating diagnostic errors to being able to make uh, optimized treatment decisions to being able to do real-time clinical trial matching. And that's led in the last few years to an explosion of new approaches, new platforms, new digital health technologies. Bayesian in particular is very focused on how we can use this data to start forecasting accurately patients at risk for declining trajectories, right? So which patients are likely to decline and can we make that information available in a timely way to providers, to care teams, so that they can now start to use that information to anticipate, move from like reactive approaches to proactive approaches to accelerate both giving the right treatment and giving it in a timely way. And uh, we're doing this, I mean, the need for this is pretty much all over the place, all the way from, uh, you know, hospital acquired conditions inside mm -hmm. health systems where you're coming in, these are life-threatening preventable complications like sepsis, cardiac arrest, acute respiratory failure, bleeding, hemorrhage, shock, all sorts of things that happen that often get people get caught by surprise. They're suddenly mm -hmm. deteriorating and doctors, I mean, there's a lot to do. They're doing their best. But the reality is often signs are slowly building up and it's very easy to miss. And what mm -hmm. Bayesian is possible to do is reading data in the background. It's providing a second pair of eyes. It's noticing, observing when a patient is looking like they're showing signs of deterioration and making it very easy to surface it within workflow to make it easy for the provider to act. And in short, Kenup is another way of making this EMR smarter, more predictive, more proactive. Can you please walk us through, let's say in simple terms, how does it work? So very simple terms. The platform, we've already partnered with Epic and we've partnered with Cerner. These are the two largest electronic health record providers at health systems here. We run in the background. We, in real time, pull data out on patients as they're appearing in a given setting. So this could be the ED, this could be the floor, this could be the ICU, this could be if they're deployed in, uh, you know, hospital at home type units. But effectively, as long as the data is connect health, we use the standard in, um, uh, electronic APIs to be able to pull data in real time in the background. The platform is now analyzing these data 
to in real time run models to identify patients at risk for a whole host of conditions. And then removing this information back into the front end workflow of the person who's best positioned to act on it. So depending on the condition area, there are different types of stakeholders, right? It could be either the triage nurse, or it could be the ED physician, or it could be the bedside nurse, or it could be a case manager, or it could be a discharge plan. In some cases, it's a collection of people who are acting or responsible for the patient's care. And so it's basically integrating and then providing that information back into the system of record where they're used to interacting with their patient data and they're making it really easy to understand both of all the patients they might be viewing, which ones are at risk, what are they at risk for, why are they at risk, what is the context here, and we've analyzed data from this encounter, past encounters, to make it very easy to surface all the pertinent information, and then they have some way of a workflow that makes it very easy for them to use the information to come to a determination of what needs to happen and do the next best thing. In providing that information, we're, we're, we're analyzing that patient against our record of patients, a vast database of patients, to be able to understand for patients like this patient recommendations for both either their risk for sentinel events, their uh, likelihood of benefiting from specific therapies. And then that makes it really easy for them to then use that information to incorporate in the, you know, make a decision about what to do. Thanks for clarifying that. That's very helpful. And a follow-up question to that, and now that you're in this world of innovating within the challenges that there are within the medical system, what would you say are some of the challenges when using machine learning to contextualize decision-making in medicine? And how do you continue to work through these challenges? Absolutely. I think machine learning and AI done right is going to be such a powerful catalyst for turning this data into useful, valuable information that makes it easier to both do the right thing, but faster to do the right thing and makes the caregiver's job easier and faster and better, not harder. But to do it well has has meant really like a, you know, a lot of new things. When MLA AI was originally designed for, you know, other domains like in face recognition, using imaging data. Here, there are so many more challenges we've had to overcome. First, like we're looking at multimodal data. So it's not like one type of data. You have many different types of data coming in. Each of these different types of data, you have to figure out how do you make sense of these different types together? So this kind of multimodal reasoning involves a slew of challenges that are very different from, you know, if you're only reasoning about one kind of data. The second is that it's multimodal data that is both structured and unstructured. So there's continuous measurements, there's text notes. How do you process that to make sense? The third is that um, you're often looking at data where uh, it's in, it needs to make sense in real time. For many conditions, you need some level of either same day, same hour, ideally same minute level of visibility. Why? Because even if it's something related to a chronic disease or chronic condition, patients are in the doctor's office. If you can analyze the history and the data and give recommendations right then and there, it's much easier to engage with the patient rather than after the fact. If like one month later, I'm analyzing this data and then giving insights, it's way harder to do something with that. So a big part of it is then being able to process this in real time and then One very overlooked fact 
is how do you do this in a way that is at the same level of quality veracity as like a drug or a device, which is in the in the real world, uh, lots of shifts can happen. Like the pop, you might see new populations, the underlying, uh, the way the data is recorded can shift and drift. The uh, physician practices can change that can impact kind of if you're relying on real world data, how your models perform. So you really need like end-to-end infrastructure to be able to um, monitor learn and tune in these real world diverse environments. And so those are the kinds of challenges we've had to overcome. One of the benefits of being a researcher, like having spent 20 years in the field and have really seen the field grow, done a ton of seminal work in a ton of different areas is the, uh, is the joy of being able to invent ideas to circumvent some of these challenges. And, and that's what we had to do for, you know, over the last 10 years, we've We've written papers in terms of monitoring, in terms of tuning in the real world. How do you detect these drift and shifts? How do you um, learn in a way that like uh, you can say something about the guarantee of the quality of the inferences, their reliability and robustness? It's such a fast moving field and there's so much exciting work going on. And part of Bayesian was about both bringing our work, but my colleagues, their work, state-of-the-art research back into the real world. Mm-hmm. Well, that is incredibly interesting. And moving on to one of the products that you have on Bayesian's platform, we want to talk about how you've been able to identify and alert providers to sepsis in a faster manner. And I noticed in the paper that you called it TRUES, the targeted real-time early warning system. So we'd love to hear more about TRUES and also where the name came from. Yeah. So in medicine, there's been uh, over the last 20 years sort of a history of like these early warning systems and the call news, news, uh, modified early warning system goes to news. And so um, most of these are sort of often like expert driven scoring systems that look at like some small three, four, five parameters that are integrated to be able to, the concept here is if we can score these parameters and use them to kind of assess, get a general picture of the patient. And the way targeted real-time early warning systems came from was the idea that, uh, you know, news and news, they're general, they're almost too general to a point where they're too non-specific and not actionable. Mm-hmm. And so the idea is could we use machine learning to use large amounts of data to learn signs of deterioration and even perhaps signs of deterioration targeted a a large collection of condition areas and diverse patient populations and start to now uh, build more targeted systems that Mm -hmm. are real time, that are just embedded within workflow that can start to modify. So that's sort of where Truth came from. Truth Mm -hmm. initially started back in 2014 when we were first doing this kind of work as a very simple model, a machine learning model that learned from data and then over time, it would go into this large end-to-end system where we have to think about so many different things in order to get these ideas to work in the real mm-hmm. world setting. And that meant all the way from, you know, initially we looked at very focused populations, even, you know, in the ICU. And then as soon as we start to realize many of these conditions, really the deterioration is starting to happen and really ideally should be caught this can they show up in the hospital mm-hmm. and perhaps even at home? But mm-hmm. some of the early work we did was moving it to the emergency department and tracking patients, starting to monitor their uh, labs and results the second they came to the ED. Because mm-hmm. one option is in the emergency department, there could be long waiting lines, 
they're sitting in the ED, they're waiting. Meanwhile, let's say they're septic, their condition often deteriorates in hours and every hour is very important. Mm-hmm. And so the idea was we could, tools could start to track patients the second, you know, these kinds of data and monitor these kinds of data. The second uh, patient showed up in the ED and start to analyze them. And mm-hmm. all patients who are likely to deteriorate, that information can then be surfaced and they can be brought, you know, accelerated, right? The, uh, they can, a triage nurse and attending can see them sooner to make sure that they're getting timely treatment. And so when we started, first realization was expanding it from the ICU to many more different settings like the floor, the whole surge units, the emergency mm-hmm. department. And now we're starting to even look at uh, settings outside the hospital. Um, the second is, as you go from these different settings, you need to really think about the different kinds of data that are coming in, but also like in the ICU, you're collecting very dense data at home. Mm-hmm. Or in the ED, you're collecting very few sparse mm-hmm. data. The types of data you're collecting on different patients is very different. That meant a huge slew of techniques that would allow us to make AIML work in the real world with those diversity of settings. Mm-hmm. And so we had to build sort of uh, the platform to be able to ad- adapt to these kinds of settings and have mm-hmm. these models rather than big monolithic rich street models, which is historically how the field has approached it, to a flexible system where you have a collection of models that tunes and adapts to diverse mm-hmm. populations, diverse settings, diverse workflows, as we're going from one hospital to the next to the next, being able mm-hmm. to adapt to diverse practices. And so that meant sort of really an adaptive AI platform that could really work in the real world. And that took us, you know, all these years to build and then deploy and, you know, how do we build it in a way that providers will trust and adopt. Very, very interesting. And, you know, I think that you really hit on something that I wanted to follow up with, which is that anyone that has stepped foot in a hospital, especially emergency department, is very familiar with the sounds of a hospital and how much people suffer from alert fatigue for that same reason about these monolithic structures that alert people to non-pertinent information. So I want to talk to you a little bit more about the targetedness of your platform and how you were able to build trust with physicians to actually get them to adopt this technology. As we worked in this area, it's been, I've gone and shadowed clinical uh, groups. It's been uh, kind of so sad to see so many ways in which today technology is kind of hurting them rather mm-hmm. than helping them. Mm-hmm. But the reality is whenever you start or go in a new area, it's almost always that way, right? You start mm-hmm. and in the beginning things are new and they're a little bit broken and they're a little bit annoying and things aren't quite work meant to fit together. And then it takes investments and iterations mature ideas to get it to a place where things are really easy and helpful. So I kind of see uh, the last 10 years in a way has been about like, you know, what I see as the first generation of technology infrastructure, right? We went from, you know, having unified electronic medical record infrastructure on which now lots of new applications can be built, which is so exciting. Mm-hmm. And once BMR came to be, it was extremely natural for Lots of groups, including internal groups, where they're tinkering with ideas to see what if we put an alert for this? What if we put an alert for that? Like, I have an idea. And so Mm -hmm. that means now there are hundreds and thousands of alerts going off in a given hour. And it's impossible to pay attention to them. So it's, it's almost like it's as good as not having any except worse because you have the, uh, <laughs> it's not effective, but you have the annoyance of mm-hmm. sounds. 
So I think we're going to see this new era of systems where really now as we start to design around provider mm -hmm. experience, right? Like a big part of Gazian's platform was also partly improving the quality and the accuracy and the inferences that we're providing, the mm -hmm. context we're providing, but also how it's being provided mm -hmm. in a way that is designed to make it easy for providers to incorporate it in their data decision-making. Mm -hmm. And um, and that means really caring about uh, your users, right? And I am emphasizing physicians, but really it's the whole care team, right? Like what is the care coordination workflow? You know, who's acting first? What information are they seeing as a team? How is, how is mm -hmm. it helping them act more quickly? How is it helping them not waste time? Mm -hmm. How is it helping them save time? How is it helping them improve documentation quality? How is it helping them improving coding or compliance? Things that they are required to do today where they have extremely cumbersome workflows. And can we create one very simple, easy way that is really end-to-end -end, that is kind of embedded with the workflow, making it all very easy to do? And that's how we sort of went around designing our approach and designing Bayesian. And it's not like we got it right the first day. When mm -hmm. we first you know, started to do these kinds of ideas, it was super non-obvious to us exactly how to do it. And, you know, I remember when we deployed some of the earlier versions of the system back in 2017, we had all of five physicians using it. And it was so disheartening because we put in so much energy to build it. And it took us many, 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 many iterations and lots of um, new developments to get it right, to be able to show what we showed in the papers, which is, uh, you know, in a period that was messy, like through COVID, where you know there was so much disruption over the study period, there were almost 4,000 plus clinicians using the platform, 2,000 plus providers on it, and you know almost 89. I think the study showed 89% provider adoption, which is you know when Bayesian flags a patient, providers come in, they open the Bayesian platform, they look at what the within the MR. They're looking at what the signs and symptoms and context is. It takes like under a second to access it within the MR. It's all very fast. They're almost like working with it as though they're just interacting with the MR. It provides them context, it provides them workflow. It makes it very easy for them to both analyze, evaluate, uh, agree, disagree, and, and if as appropriate document and treat in a timely way. And then aids all the compliance piece that needs to happen as a follow-up. Uh, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid requires that there's public reporting of like our, our patients, are they getting, you know, this bundle of treatments that they're supposed to get? And are they getting it within a timely way? So within a three-hour period, are they getting what they're supposed to get? And today we have dedicated people who go back into the electronic health record and are scanning for signs to see, you know, manually, which patient got it, which patient didn't get it, where's the documentation, what is this, what is that? And our system just kind of automates that. So suddenly we're saving all this like time, but also it creates an opportunity for learning because now that we've made it easy to understand who is and isn't, it's very easy for teams to not understand like, oh, 20% of our patients are not receiving this, why are they not receiving and what can we do differently, right? And it mm -hmm. allows teams to actually improve quality using this kind of data. And I actually had a follow-up question about your colleagues that you're working with, how they're, you know, in academic research, and then you're bringing the solutions to life. And my question is the timelines for rigorous academic research 
doesn't always or even often align with timelines of venture-backed startups. How did you manage to effectively strike this balance? Absolutely. Uh, great question. I think um, it really helped us that we had deep scientific roots and we were able to spend a large amount of time within an academic setting uh, where we were able to bring an incredible team together to be able to iterate, iterate, iterate and create the foundational layer for a company that is really research-led. And some of this is finding investors that are ambitious, that really care to solve the big problems and doing it right. And so we've been really lucky all the way from the kinds of uh, funding we were able to get while we were Hopkins, but also the kinds of investors that we were able to get funding from and the kinds of investors I hope to continue to attract because we, we clearly understand, right? Like the opportunity here is enormous. So the issue here is not, are the problems we're solving for valuable? The main bottleneck here is time and again, this has happened where people come in, they want to make a difference, but they don't come in with the right tool chest. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not coming in with the right level of stamina. It's like you want to climb Everest, but you really have only ever climbed a little hill before. <laughs> but the thing that's pretty cool is if we could, it'll open up so many possibilities. And that's what we've been able to show. We, we have the foundations. We were glad we were able to do some of the early work in an academic mm -hmm. setting where there's more room for exploration, but that gives us now really, really good foundation on which we can start to build and bring in some of in industry, some of the um, skill sets that exist to accelerate the application of the foundational layer, the platform to lots of new areas now in partnership with health systems and partnership with our clinical groups that we are partnering with. And also, you know, people with deep commercial knowledge where there are partnerships you can do that allow you to scale much faster. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think you bring a great point with investors and who you find to back your startup. And that actually leads onto my final question, which is what do you value most in your investors? What characteristics were you looking for in a VC firm as you raised funds? I'm really excited about partnering with people who really want to solve the big problems and they have the appetite it takes to solve the big problems. The worst thing you want to do is you go after a big problem area, you can see the possibilities, but within three months you become impatient and you give up. And, and that doesn't make any sense, right? So uh, for me, it's really about people who are deeply knowledgeable, who reason from first principles, have conviction and can understand why the problems we're solving for are so critical, important and massive. Mm -hmm. And then also have the background to truly help scale, uh, you know, big ideas. I think you bring um, a very good point that is extremely important to just have investors that believe in you, have your same values to be able to make of, of your startup a success. Now I'm going to pass it on to Wayne for the last set of questions, uh, which is the lightning round. All right. So, Dr. Saria, your academic background is in computer science. But if you had to pick a different subject of study, what would it be? Design and art. I would be a fashion designer. Really? I love that. Very cool. I wanted to be a fashion designer when I was 16 as well. So... <laughs> I actually went to art school for 12 years and really did very seriously consider the possibility of becoming, so in India, to do anything, you have to take these national exams, whether you want to be a doctor, engineer, or a designer. 
And I literally sat for exams in engineering and in design. I passed both, which I was very grateful for, and then thought about it. And then I thought, well, you know what? Why don't I start by doing robotics? Because I think it's easier to do that at this age. And then maybe I'll come back to a second career in design. Very, very neat. Wow. And so you took those exams at the same time. You, you, you had two career paths going simultaneously. Correct. Wow. Very cool. All right. That, that is very interesting. Okay. So next question. If you had the opportunity to meet a historical figure of any era, who would it be? Oh, gosh. This one is super tough. There's so many scientists I absolutely love. <laughs> um, perhaps Feynman. Just because okay. there have been moments when I've been like, life's been tough or sad or like whatever. And I've read his books and laughed and laughed hard. He feels like the kind of friend I would really enjoy hanging out with. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. Very fascinating. Okay. All right. Last question for you. If you had to pick a city to live in outside of the United States and your home country, which would it be? I wouldn't say city so much as a little town. I love living towns because you get to like get lost and think and read and discover and see beautiful things. So my husband and I, when we first went on a trip, we went to uh, in Chicotera in Italy to this town called Vernazza. And mm -hmm. we spent uh, all night on the water, uh, like talking about physics. And uh, it was just beautiful. It was so, so much fun. It's one of our favorite places. So it's perhaps potentially overblown it and romanticized it in my head. And that was almost 20 years ago. But I still love every time we look back and we, we think very fondly of that place. So maybe there. Oh, beautiful. Well, I think we've come to the end of our interview. Dr. Saria, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing more about the exciting things that you and your team at Bayesian are working on. It was truly a pleasure hosting you today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Health Tech Talks or email us at healthtechtalks at gmail.com. Our music is from Juan Arango and our logo by Daniela Rojas. I'm Laura Gomez. And I'm Wynn Dobbs. This was Health Tech Talks. Till next time.